If you have a Bible, you can find the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 13. When it comes to your walk with God, have you ever felt like you're never going to get to exactly where you want to be? Have you ever felt like you kind of got there and then you slid, take two steps forward and one step back and one step forward, two steps back? What's the old song? Paul uh, Bill, opposite track. Anyway, um, you ever feel that way? Like you can't get to where you want to go because it's, you start making positive direction and then it's, you're right back where you started and the sin you thought you'd seen defeated, you find yourself commit that sin again, the habit or whatever, the attitude you can't seem to shake, um, and you find yourself sometimes feel like, wow, I just... You know, this is hard. And sometimes when you look back over your life 10, 15 years, 5 years, you look back over your life and you can see a lot of change, but in the moment sometimes it doesn't feel like you're really progressing from time to time. And the truth is, um, as God's people, we are continually being built into the likeness of Christ. You're a Christian this morning. Uh, the moment you became a Christian, God didn't ju- did not just zap you, and then all of a sudden, you know, you were everything you needed to be. Now, He gave you all the resources, and He saved you, and He made you who you are in Christ. The moment you believed in Christ, you became a radically new person. But working that out and appropriating that in your life is a process that takes the course over over time. And many times we do experience setbacks. We're going a new direction, but sometimes we face hills and we hit potholes and things of that nature. And, but we're being built into people God wants us to be. But it's an ongoing process. We have setbacks. We have failures. But God's always working. He's always building in our life. It's the same way in the corporate body of the local church. Uh, the renewal or the revitalization of the local church is an ongoing process. There's setbacks, there's failures, but we must continually build. Every church, really, should constantly be in a state of renewal and revitalization, and sometimes we need it more seriously than others uh, because we, we are either trying to move forward and trying to become more of who God wants us to be, or we slide backwards and we, become, we slowly uh, take on a, a stagnation. And the next thing you know, we look back and we kind of go, where did everybody go? What happened to our mission? What are, what are we doing? Why are we here? And that just slowly happens over the course of time. Well, today we come to the book, the end of the book of Nehemiah that we've been in for nine weeks now. And uh, as we come to the last chapter of Nehemiah, let me just give you a quick recap um, to kind of sum everything up. Uh, the book of Nehemiah takes place uh, a little over a hundred years after the Babylonian exile, the captivity that takes place. You might be familiar with the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those stories happen uh, where they're taken into captivity a little over a hundred years before this book happens. So the people of God are scattered. Uh, Jerusalem has been ransacked. It's, the walls have been torn down. It's been left amok. And then some years later, uh, a guy comes along to rebuild the temple and to bring some people back to Jerusalem. And so they think, oh wow, th- things are getting back together here we're going to get temple worship started who knows maybe God will send the Messiah you know they're kind of getting excited and but it kind of just stops there it doesn't really get revitalized it's just they've got the temple worship and it's sort of taking place and and but there's they're not safe the walls are still down the city's still kind of a ghost town it's not well populated and it's not the flourishing place that God intended to be for his people and a guy like named Nehemiah at the beginning of this book he, he finds out he asks somebody that has been to Jerusalem, he says, what's condition is Jerusalem in? And he finds out that the walls are still down. It's open and exposed to the nations around it. It's basically a laughing stock um, uh, to the nations around it. Instead of being this crown jewel, the center of where God's people gather for worship and to make much of Him and to reach the nations from there. And he weeps. 
and he fasts and he mourns and he prays and he's and he's broken by this. And this is a, a Jewish man who who serves the ruling king, King Artaxerxes, who was the at this time the king of Persia, who was the ruling people at that time. He's the cupbearer to the king. He used to taste his wine and food and things before before he would uh, before he would eat it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was well trusted. He was a confidant. He had what was a kind of a dangerous job. It was also kind of a cushy job at the palace. And he goes to the king, and this is the very king who had halted the rebuilding of the walls a few years before. And he goes to the king and says, "I want to go rebuild those walls." in Jerusalem and the king gives him permission and he goes and he gathers God's people together and he rallies them together and they begin to rebuild the walls so that it can be a safe place again and a good place for worship and a good place for God's people to inhabit so they can serve God's purpose uh, for them as being a light to the nations and people begin to rise up they don't like this the surrounding nations they begin to try to intimidate them they begin to threaten them with war they begin to try to stop them but they just keep going they keep going they keep going they even have to deal with personal problems where people within their own community begin to take advantage. The wealthy were taking advantage of the poor. And, and there was all this conflict going on. They had to deal with that, but they conquered it. And they moved on. They kept building the walls. And then sometimes after the walls got built, they, they had a time where they got up and, they, and they, on a particular day, the law was read to the people and a great revival began to take place. They began to get broken over their sin. They began to celebrate the festivals again. And they, and they even make a covenant with God that they would keep the original covenant. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, they make this, the Ten Commandments, things like that. They make this promise that we're going to really do good this time and we're really going to keep them. And so they make this covenant. They rededicate their lives, so to speak. You ever done that before, God? This time I mean it. I'm serious business. And so they make the serious business, they, they go down at camp, they cry, everything happens, they have big youth camp experience, right, right, good old-fashioned revival, right, right right there in Nehemiah chapter 10, and, and we see them rededicate, they dedicate the walls to God, they celebrate, and they rejoice, and it's this great time that we see in Nehemiah, as we left off last week, of joy and reestablishing the strength of temple worship, and they've made this big commitment um, to live for God and to not wander from Him anymore. But when we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 13, some time has passed, probably at least 12 years. Nehemiah has left and he's went back to Susa. He's went back to work for the king and he's not been in Jerusalem. He decides one day to ask the king, can I go back? And he goes back to check on what's going on in Jerusalem and he is horrified at what he finds. It didn't stick. Right? Uh, they, it didn't stick. The revival, so to speak, didn't stick. They're, they look a lot like they looked. I mean, the walls are built, and there's more people, but the spirituality of the people begins to look a lot like it used to before. And we learn a lot about that. And there's many times we see that in people's lives, and we think, you know, what in the world is going on here? It's like, and they've retreated. And the truth is, in the Christian life, we are continuously being built. There's things we're going to be able to learn and compare. There's some things that are different about their day and age and ours. They were under the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant. We'll talk about that. But there's some principles in the sense of our relationship with God and building a life that is, is growing to be closer to Him and who He wants us to be as a church and as individuals that we can take in some, some application to that. And so what I want to do is as we read through this, I'm just going to kind of stop and pause as we read because we're going to read the whole chapter and I'm going to kind of explain it as we go and then I'm going to give you some takeaways at the end. So look with me, starting in verse 1 of Nehemiah. Before we do that, let me pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word today. And we're grateful for its truth. And God, we just pray that you'd open our eyes to understand it. We, we need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today, Lord. I'm not adequate for that, but the Holy Spirit is. And we pray that he would open our eyes and, and teach us this truth today and help us to apply it to our lives. And we pray that you would draw 
your people closer to you. We pray that you would draw those that are far from you to you and that Christ be exalted through this passage. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, starting in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 13. If you don't have scripture, it's on the screen. On that day, when they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So this is, we pause. This is the first of many problems that we're going to see arise. This, this one is the problem of the co- compromising of the assembly of the Lord. Now, scholars differ on these three verses. They're kind of uh, funny. People just are confused whether they really go better with chapter 12. And if they happened before Nehemiah came back to town or whether they happened after, I tend to believe they go with right here uh, with Nehemiah. And we're going to see here in a moment where Nehemiah has come back to town. So when it says on that day, it doesn't really have to mean that it happened on the day that we spoke of last week where they dedicated the walls. But it was on this particular day, at some point in the future, I believe, uh, that they discovered this. So it's, it's much like we've seen in another part of Nehemiah where they're reading the word, they're reading the law, and they come across something they're not doing right. And the situation here with the Ammonite and the Moabite who's not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord, that comes from Deuteronomy 23, 3, and 5, 3 through 5. There's a law about that. And it's stated right here in verse 2 why they're not allowed to. And that goes back to a story in Numbers 22 through 25. So when God was giving the people the promised land, these people, they didn't, they didn't welcome them. They, in fact, they tried to get Balaam to act as a false prophet and to prophesy a curse over them and to curse them. And God turned it into a blessing. So these are people that really opposed God's people. When God's people were coming into God's will for them. And so God said, you know, as, as a result of that, you're not coming into the assembly of the Lord. You're not allowed. You're, you're, you're an enemy. You're, uh, you're bad news. Now, if someone converted to Judaism, if someone came to faith in Yahweh, that was a different story. We see that with, uh, um, with Ruth from the story of, uh, from the story of Ruth uh, in the book of Ruth. And so... That's the situation that's going on there. So they realize that they haven't been doing this. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from all Israel those who fall into sin. They, they might have even went a step further, it looks like. It's hard to tell from that verse. But they, they begin to realize, okay, we, we've allowed ourselves to compromise God's law in this area. And we've allowed people that don't even follow Yahweh, the one true God, into the assembly. We've got to correct that. And the thing is, this is not the first time they've had to correct this. See, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah go together. And in the time of Ezra, just maybe a decade or so before this, they had, done, they had, had to deal with the same thing. And so they're repeating the past. So look with me in verse 4. Now before this, Elisha, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Now this is where we find out that where he was at, where Nehemiah was at. I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. 
Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God, which with the grain offering and the frankincense. So he was problem number two here. The defiling of God's house, the defiling of the temple. The situation, if you'll remember, Tobiah was one of the enemies of the nations who was who was calling against them. He probably claimed to be a follower of the one true God, but really wasn't. He had some really weird theology, and he was kind of what you would consider like a heretic. Uh, in their in, in their day, and use our vernacular, an apostate, and he was one of the enemies that had rose up against them when God had told them to re, had had them rebuilding the walls. He was the one that was like, you know, if you put a little fox up there, the wall's going to come down. He was with he was with um, the group that was criticizing them and were making fun of them and were mocking them as God's people. So this guy's a bad dude. He's a thug. He's a he's he's he is just a bully. And now this guy, this priest, Eliashib has invited this man to come basically set up a luxury apartment inside the temple. He's taken the place where they're supposed to store this food and wine and grain and tithes and things of that nature, and he's moved them somewhere else, got them out, and he's, and he's made this guy a nice place to live in God's house. This idolatry. James Hamilton says of this passage, this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Because Israel had refused to be ruled by Yahweh, an Ammonite thug was ruling them. Because Israel had refused to separate itself from the idolaters of the land and commit to the worship of Yahweh, an Ammonite strongman took up residence in the house of God. That's really what you have. It's a very physical picture of a spiritual reality, of the spiritual bondage they had subjected themselves to by not submitting to God. And so Nehemiah's reaction is anger. <laughs> because he, he knows God is holy, and his house should be treated as holy, so he's angry for good reason, and he's reflecting a desire to see God treated as, as God, really. And so he's angry. He just throws all the stuff out, and then we go to verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shulamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. Problem number three, forsaking of the house of the Lord. They're not providing the things needed to be provided so the temple worship can flourish, so that the priests can be taken care of, so that the singers can be taken care of, so that the gatekeepers can be taken care of. They're not bringing in the things that they're supposed to. So he has to reestablish that, and he has to take faithful people, treasurers, so to speak, to overlook this and to make sure it's getting taken care of. I mean, this is something he'd already done a decade or so before. Now he's having to do that again. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when, I, when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. But I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not your God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? 
As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and all sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Now, this is not like a charismatic thing. Uh, I think he, I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's going to be praying for their healing. Uh, I think he's going to be putting a hurting on them. Uh, he, he's, I'm going to lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. <laughs> They're like, okay, we're out. Verse 22, Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So here we have, in this lengthy passage, the problem of them dishonoring the Sabbath. And Judah, he warns people, he sees trading wine presses in Judah, treading the wine presses in Judah, and they're bringing things into Jerusalem to sell. Another group of foreigners who lives in Jerusalem is selling fish and goods in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day was to be kept holy. God had given them as a, the Sabbath day as a day of rest and a day devoted to Him and to worship Him. And it was a reminder every week that you're not God. And you can't do everything, and you need to stop and have faith that God can take care of everything, and that God makes the grain grow, and that God makes the grapes grow, and and God makes the cows grow, and God does everything that needs to be done, and you just need to rest and let God do what He does, and you need to worship God that day, and rest in Him, and worship that day. So they weren't supposed to do anything else on that day. That's the way it worked. And that day pointed us ahead to our rest that we have in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and we rest in Him from our works. But he has to confront them over this. He confronts the nobles of Judah, the leaders. He calls them out for allowing this sin and warns them of how God's judgment can happen. Then he does something about it, right? And when it starts getting dark, basically, on Friday afternoon, he's like, okay, Sabbath's about to start, so let's just shut everything down so nobody can even get in. They won't be able to sell if they can't come in here with stuff, so let's just shut it down. And so that's when you have the people camping outside for a couple of nights until he says, I'm going to lay hands on you, right? And which is a very spiritual way of saying, we're about to go out back, right? And so, yeah, very serious uh, stuff happening, and happening here. And so he sets up some Levites to guard the gates and just having to reestablish good leadership in this situation. Verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him, king, made, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons, Jehoiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. And that's how the book ends. It opens with a prayer, and it ends with a prayer.
And here the last problem that we see is idolatrous intermarriage. This is not a racial issue. This is a spiritual issue. These, are, these nations worship other gods. And it's always been a sin for God's people to marry people who are not God's people. It was in the Old Testament. It is in the New Testament. And it is today. And so this situation is they're, they're marrying idolaters. And he, he warns them. He, that's the point, right? When he warns them about it, it's not about their race. He goes, you see what happened to Solomon? He got led astray into idolatry. Don't you see what's happening? Don't you see what's going on? He's warning them of this. And notice he points out early on in this passage that their children speak the other languages, but they don't speak the language of the people. They don't speak Hebrew. He said, why why is that a big problem? He's worried about losing the language. What language is the Old Testament written in? Hebrew. They're not going to be able to read the Bible, much less obey the Bible in a couple of generations at the rate they're going. They're losing the very language that God's Word is giving to them. And this is a major issue. And in verse 25, you see these curses and these beatings. It's not him cussing a blue streak. This is, it's probably, most likely, as commentators point out, him bringing down the curses of the law on them. Remember, they had, they had said, we'll be cursed. That's what they had said in Nehemiah 10. We'll be cursed if we don't keep this. It's a curse and a blessing. That's the way it works. And he, he's calling down the curses of the law on them. And it's possible, as some have pointed out, uh, someone pointed out that the beatings and things might have been actually more of a religious ritualistic punishment um, as they had stoning and things of that in those days. That This might have been more formal and less of a tirade. We, I don't know. Um, it's hard to say. This, this man is not a perfect man, so we don't know exactly. Um, but, um, but it's very possible. Um, but either way, he is angry, and there is some righteous anger here uh, because the people are making a mockery of God's people. And so he points out to them, he warns them of the situation. And even in verse 28-29, the high priest Elisha had a grandson who was married to Sambalat's daughter. Sambalat was the ringleader against Israel in the rebuilding of the walls. He even threatened war to prevent the wall building. And the intermarrying here has infected even the families of the priesthood, is the point here. See, anybody could be, anybody in that family, any of those men could have ended up being called, could be called to be a priest. So they're tainting the priesthood. And so Nehemiah sums up and focuses on the fact, when he sums up this book, he focuses not on the fact of the wall being built, but what he had done to see proper worship of God flourish among God's people. And he did this, he says, I want to be remembered by God. Not by people, but by God. It's out of love and devotion for God. He was not on a power kick. He was passionate about God and His truth. And as we summarize this chapter, in all of this, you have Nehemiah back to what was the greatest work of his life. He shows back up. This is the greatest. This is what he's known for, right? Is rebuilding these walls. And he shows up, but he, he had wanted to do more than rebuild walls. He was rebuilding, helping to rebuild a people. And he shows up, and it's a mess. And they're practicing many of the same things that started the exile in the first place. Now, here's one of the most disheartening things about this passage. When you think back or you look back at Nehemiah 10, when they made their recommitment, they rededicated their life, and we're never going to do this anymore. And they said, we're going to keep the law. But they pointed out three areas in particular where they made promises to God that they would especially be careful not to sin in these areas. Number one was not intermarrying with the foreign women, the idolaters. Number two was observing the Sabbath, in particular buying from the surrounding nations on the Sabbath when they would try to sell them things. Number three was not, take, was not neglecting the house of God but making sure all the things were there and were brought in so that the house of God was provided for and so they could have proper worship. They failed all three areas. They have completely went back on everything they said. 
So ultimately, that's what you see in chapter 13. And really what it points us to is this. They needed a new covenant because they weren't very good at keeping the old. Just as we need a new covenant because we will not be very good at keeping the old one. They, like those before them and those after them, could never keep the law perfectly. They needed a new heart, as God promised through Ezekiel. To give a new heart and to put His Spirit... They got the stony heart and give a heart of flesh and put His Spirit within His people so that His Word is written on our hearts and so that we'll desire to obey Him. He'll make us, so to speak, it says, empower us to obey Him. Not perfectly in this life, but growing and maturing in that and obeying Him and having a desire to obey Him and appropriate His Word into our life. And then one day, when we're rescued from a fallen world, when Jesus returns, or we go to be with Jesus, we will sin no more. They needed a new heart. They needed a new covenant. Now, here are the big takeaways for us as we think about the ongoing nature, the ongoing nature of us being built as individuals and the people God wants us to be, and as a corporate community, as the people of God here at North Park, are being built up continually. The first takeaway is this. God's people are a work in progress. That is not news. I didn't say it was profound. I said it was a takeaway. Right? We are a work in progress. We, in the Old Testament, they were always a work in the progress. And even in the New Testament, with new hearts and a new covenant, we're still a work in progress. And the first thing we learn from this is the whole chapter is spiritual renewal and revival is a, is a continuous thing. It, it wasn't just in one area that they had slid back in. They had several areas. It wasn't enough that they had made a commitment one day. They had to choose every day to walk in light of God's truth, and they failed to do that. So if you're a believer in Christ, you've been given a new life. You've been given a new heart. The gospel of Jesus', the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection on your behalf, to, that you can be, have union with Him, be united with Him through faith. And when Christ died, you died. The old, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. And you have a new life. That whole truth in the gospel has been, has been given to you by faith. But you haven't arrived spiritually. We haven't been perfected. We're not complete. Even in Philippians... Even in Philippians, when the Apostle Paul writes about his own spiritual journey, he says, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not sinless yet. See, people become Christians by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus. I try to say this often. We repent of our sin. We turn from from sin to God. Embrace Christ. And growth in the Christian life is about maintaining that posture for the rest of our life. Genuine Christians do maintain that posture. But we continually repent of sin and grow to deeper faith in Christ. And repenting of sin doesn't just mean I tell God all the things I do that's wrong. It means I forsake them. I, I turn from them. So we do still sin. But we deal, grow, growing Christians deal with their sin. And renewal begins at conversion. Becoming, you're made into a new person. But then it continues to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life throughout the rest of your life. And it, so it, it, you've got to continue to pursue the things of God and to participate with God in this renewal process. When we lived in Alabama... We had this, uh, we, were in, we were in this little garden home, had a real tiny yard, you know. These, this, I mean, just needed a little push more, and in like 15 minutes the yard was cut, right? It was like, then it was over. But it was, it was a, not a great yard because we had more weeds, I think, than we had grass. And here's what I learned. Weeds grow faster than grass, right? And, and because you have weeds, you don't have good grass. Because they just like suck up all the nutrients. And so we had, I mean, terrible grass and some of the best weeds in Alabama right there in our yard. And so I could mow that grass on Saturday... And that didn't mean anything next Saturday. That didn't mean anything the Saturday after that. If I waited a few weeks, I'd be good to see the driveway when I, when, I, when I came in. It had to be maintained. 
Because just because I had cut the grass didn't mean the weeds and the grass wasn't still going to grow. It was going to continue to grow. It needed to continually be maintained. It was an ongoing process. And it was warm most of the year. Not as much as it is here, but warm most of the year. So most of the year, you had to cut the grass. Just like here, most of the year, you're going to cut the grass. It's a continual, ongoing thing. And in a similar way, we can never sit back and think, well, you know, I'm godly. I've arrived. We've got to continually be striving for holiness. Spiritual growth and spiritual health requires continual pursuit. Walls get built like they did in Jerusalem, and they're done. But the work of God among His people and the hearts of His people is an ongoing thing, and that's what they failed to realize. You know, our church here at North Park, if you're new with us, you might not realize this, is over 90 years old. This was a, a church plant the First Baptist Orlando over 90 years ago. I think about 93, 94 years ago now. Um, Maybe 95. It's, it's, we've been here a while. We haven't arrived. I don't know if we haven't. <laughs> we, we're, we, cannot, we have not gotten to a point where we can say we are the perfect church. And if you want to see the perfect church, come to North Park. That's, that's not, you're not going to see that on a slogan. You're not going to see that in an advertisement. And, and we're not going to put it on a t-shirt. And at the same time, some of us have been Christians for, maybe you've been Christians for decades. Have you arrived yet? Have you got to a place where you're like, you know, I don't struggle anymore, I don't, I don't fail anymore? Of course not. The building up of God's people, both corporately and individually, is a continual process in this life. That means as individuals and in churches, that means we must embrace change. Do you realize that? Because well, I don't like change. Well, Christian life is change, man. I'm not talking about you get out change for a second. I'm just talking about change. God is changing us. He is continually in a work of renewing us and making us more like Christ. He is changing us individually, corporately, all those things. So we have to continually be seeking to get in line with His Word and to fulfill our missional calling. We're seeking to become increasingly healthy here at our churches. To give you some examples, we've we've, targeted areas. We've targeted areas that we're trying to work through as we seek the complete revitalization and renewal of this local church in this community. We need continued focus on healthy leadership. We'll talk about leadership here in a minute. Membership and what it means to be a member and, and health among our membership. Our mission and vision alignment and understanding that and aligning it with the New Testament and God's purposes for it. Our ministries. Making sure we have healthy, strong ministries that, that fit the needs of our communities and, and making disciples here. Stewardship. Being good stewards of our finances, which we've, God's blessed us so much with, and of our property and all that God, God chooses to give us. And Developing leaders. And investing in leaders so that we continue to have leaders that God would rise up here in North Park. And then our systems. Which includes how, this basically, when I say systems, I mean how we get things done. That's church government, that's committees, that's structure, that's how things get done, so to speak, behind the scenes, for lack of a better word, as we move forward. All those things are things we constantly have to evaluate and constantly seek to make sure we're in line with the Word and in line with our context and in line with what's going to help us to reach our community and move forward. And those are areas we're constantly analyzing because we're a work in progress. And as an individual, as a believer this morning, or let me ask you, are you consistently and persistently pursuing personal holiness in your life and spiritual growth? It's not just one of these things where you sit back and you go, okay, God, grow me. It's a pursuit. Apathy is not a recipe for spiritual health. It's just not. Do you realize that Jesus saved you for more than to just keep you out of hell? He has a plan and a purpose for you. And if you're not relentlessly pursuing Christ's likeness, you're missing the point. And you will drift. As D.A. Carson says, we never drift towards holiness. We never drift towards holiness. 
The fact that we are a continual work in progress is not an excuse for us to be sinful or unfaithful or lazy and just to say, well, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Right? Well, we're not perfect and we are just forgiven, but man, you're a lot more than forgiven. You are so much more than forgiven if you're a believer in Christ. You, you, have very, you, you have been united with the Creator of the universe. You have been united through faith with the One who died for your sin, who rose again. You have been united with Christ. You are hidden in Christ. Uh, you have all the spiritual riches God wants to give you right now in Christ. It, 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 it's, it's, you have it. You have the very Holy Spirit of God residing in your life, taking up residence in you to empower you, to strengthen you, to embolden you. To walk in freedom, to walk in power, to walk in ministry, to walk in service, and to do the thing, to walk in humility, to do, to live the life that Jesus wants you to live. You're so much more than forgiven. No, our motivation should be to strive for the goal for which we know we were redeemed, but we know which we can't fully reach in this life. That's what it drives us towards. So we're a work in progress. Number two, God's people need leadership. When did all this happen? When did it all unravel? Verse 6 tells us it was when Nehemiah was away. The key leader of the renewal effort has left, and that's when the people begin to just... But that's not all. When you look at verses 4 through 9 that we read, the abuse of the house of God caused by allowing Tobiah in the temple happened due to the poor leadership of a man named Elisha who set him up in there with his luxury apartment. He was charged with protecting and overseeing the temple, and this leader fails miserably. In verses 10 through 14, the forsaking of the providing for the house of the Lord. Who did not Nehemiah confront when that was not happening? He went to the officials, it says. Then what did he do? He appointed trustworthy people over the storehouses. It was a leadership issue. Verses 15 through 22 in chapter 13. Who did Nehemiah confront about the Sabbath? The nobles of Judah. Then he set up the Levites to guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Leadership issue. Verses 28 and 29, the idolatrous marriages had even infected the family of the priests, the spiritual leaders in the community. What you see here is a leadership vacuum in Jerusalem. No one was leading well spiritually, so people wandered into sinful practices. Without Nehemiah, the people ran amok. No one stepped up to lead and say, hey, this is wrong, we must stop, this is what God's Word says. It was just a continual mess. It was spiraling out of control. Leadership is critical to spiritual renewal and growth among God's people. Eliashib and others either led wrongly or refused to step up and lead. When leadership arrived back on the scene, things got better. Because leadership matters. It just does. When the Apostle Paul wrote Timothy, when he was establishing the leadership at Ephesus in the New Testament, he emphasized the need for godly character and leadership, right? He pointed out that he gave him two offices in particular. He said you need the office of pastor or elder. That's a synonymous office. And you need the pastor or deacon. He gave him two offices. Not that there's not other types of leadership and things in the church, but those were the two that he says you've you got to have. And he says you need these pastors, you need these leaders, and here's what their character is supposed to look like. You need these deacons, here's what their character is supposed to look like. And their character attributes are basically identical. There, there, there's really one difference in the elder or the pastor and the deacon, and that is the pastor or elder must be able to teach. Because it's their job to teach and to lead directionally and to they serve by leading. And the deacon's job primarily is to lead by serving. And the character matters in both because both are leadership positions and it's all right. they're both needed in the church. And so when it was established all the way back in the New Testament, they made a, when they were established in the churches, the Apostle Paul, Peter, and all these guys, they made a big deal out of spiritual leadership because you've got to have it because leadership matters among God's people. 
It's got, it, it, you need it. It's, 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 it's critical. But if you serve in some other way, like on a committee or as a teacher or you're taking on a role of influence um, in some other capacity in the church, that's still leadership. It might not be the, the official kind or quote-unquote the ordained kind that we talk about in the New Testament, but, it, but it's a type of leadership. But as John Maxwell says, leadership is influence. And so if you're influencing, you're leading in some way. And as we seek to see this particular church, as we seek revitalization for the glory of God, for the good of His people, for the good of this community, it's paramount we have godly leadership and that we develop and continue to develop godly leaders. Leaders of character and humility and servant-hearted, Christ-likeness, people that will be above reproach. Because leaders shape culture. You saw it in Jerusalem. The leaders shape the culture. When you think about Apple, what do you think about? The company, not apples, the fruit. The company. You, you think, at least I do, I think about innovation. I think about the iPhone. I think about the little iWatch. I think about, I think about their laptops. I think about, I think about all the little, you know, the Apple TV, the cutting innovation. Well, their key leader for so long was a guy named Steve Jobs. He was not a manager. He was a leader. Right? He led them in it. He was an innovator, and therefore their company became innovative. He was creative. His company, therefore, was creative. He was just a manager. What would you have? You'd still prop, maybe you'd still have a little floppy disk, and you'd be playing Oregon Trail on a Mac somewhere, right? But I think, give you a sports analogy. I used to love to watch the Chicago Bulls of the 90s era with Michael Jordan. And they set all these records, records that might get broke this year, by the way, but they set all these records for, for winning games and things like that. And when you think about those, when people thought about it, you thought about Michael Jordan, one of the greatest scorers, greatest offensive players of all time. What people fail to realize a lot of times is really what made Chicago Bulls so great at that time was they played the best defense. And what people fail to realize about Michael Jordan was while he was maybe the greatest offensive player of all time, he was probably the greatest defensive shooting guard of all time. And a lot of times people don't like to play defense because there's, there's not as many highlights in defense. You don't get the score when you're playing defense. It's just hard work and energy on defense. But when the key leader of the team plays defense, you know what happens? Everybody else plays defense. And it was the culture of the team because leaders shape culture. And churches, the pastors, the staff, the deacons, people serving in various committees in different ways, you help shape the culture. I'm not the only one with this responsibility, but I do have a responsibility. This is, why we, this is why when we do things like nominate deacons every year, you'll hear me say this usually every year. Don't go find somebody that you want to see serve and use making them a deacon as a way to get them to serve. Find somebody who's already serving, and then let's find out if they're qualified morally, and then let's see about making them a deacon. Because leadership shapes culture. What would happen if you just had a bunch of deacons that just was unwilling to serve or do anything? We don't have that. (laughs) What would happen? You'd have a church that was unwilling to do anything. Right? Because leadership shapes culture. We lead by example. And I thank God that we have servant leaders here. And we need more. We We need healthy leadership in the local church. It's important if you hold any influence in any realm in the local church, even unofficially, that you walk with God in integrity and embrace your role as a culture shaper at North Park. You want North Park to be mission-minded and servant-hearted and to love people and to be hospitable and to be a play... You know, if you want, then you've got to be those things. We've got to be those things. I've got to be those things. This goes to your personal walk as well. Not just corporately. This is individually as well. You need leadership. Jesus knew we needed leadership. He told us to what? To follow me. He tells us to follow Him. He also told us that He'd never leave us and forsake us, but He would actually send the Helper. 
Right? He sends the Holy Spirit. And you need spiritual leadership, which means you need to be spirit led. Galatians 5 addresses this. Let me read it to you. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're supposed to be led primarily by the Spirit, as is we are corporately. And God raised up, is to raise up, will raise up Spirit-led individuals to, to help lead in that way. But you in your individual life, you need to be yielded to and led by the Holy Spirit. Are you led by the Spirit or by your flesh? You say, well, how do I know? Do you produce the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh? And does your life look more like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or does it look more like the things of the flesh, the enmity and the strife and the immorality and the things that it talks about in Galatians when it talks about the, the fruit of the flesh? That tells you what you're led by. See, if you're not led by the Spirit, you won't, let, you won't lead yourself properly. You'll lead yourself by the flesh. You'll be ruled by something other than the Lord Jesus. And if you don't lead yourself, you won't lead others well. Man, if you don't allow the Holy Spirit to lead you, you won't lead your family well. You're just not that good. God's Spirit is always leading us to be in tune with God's Word. To get into God's Word. To pray, to to seek the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So that we learn to, to speak less and listen more, to react less and to pray more and to become the kind of people who are spirit-led. We need to be led. And so God's people need leadership in this continual ongoing process of growing to be the people God created us to be. Number three, God's people must continually address sin. Continually address sin. The leaders had allow sin to place a strong stranglehold on the people, just as weeds spring up and choke the life out of the garden or keep the good grass from growing, sin left to fester and grow chokes and strangles the people of God. And when you look at verses four through nine, Nehemiah throws Tobias stuff completely out of the chamber. Do you notice that? I mean he just goes in there and he's just like throwing the furniture out, it says. God's house is been turned into a luxury apartment for one of the enemies of God's people. He's angry about it. Does that scene remind you of anything from the New Testament? Yeah. Jesus shows up at the temple and there's money changing things going on. They're exploiting the poor and they've set up basically a way to exploit the poor right there in the temple where the Gentiles were supposed to come and worship. If you were a Gentile at that time, which probably most, if not all of us in this room are, you would have shown up to worship God. The one place on earth you were supposed to go and seek God and worship God had been turned into a place to manipulate and take from the poor. So Jesus shows up and He doesn't play nice. He flips tables over and He gets a whip and He drives them out. Because they were exploiting the poor, they were off mission, they were abusing God's house. He was angry about it, and it was righteous anger. And when Nehemiah is throwing the things out of the temple, he's reminding me a lot of Jesus because he's righteously angry. Because they've taken God's house and turned it into a place of sin. No, this isn't really God's house. This is God's house. If you're a believer, you're God's house. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit now. And as, as the people of God, we come together as the temple of God. It's not about a building anymore. It's about people. And we have to constantly be addressing sin in our lives. Or we'll be allowing these Tobias to camp out in our own life. 
take our own life hostage. Idols, things that don't belong there. When you look at verse 10 of chapter 13, when he realized the Levites were not being provided for, Nehemiah confronted the officials. In verse 17, he confronted the nobles over the profaning the Sabbath. In verse 23, he confronted those involved in the idolatrous marriage. You you see the word confronted. It keeps coming back up. I confronted, I confronted, I confronted. Because the only way to deal with sin is to confront it. We don't like that word confront. Right? But the only way to deal with sin is head on. It must be confronted. It can't be negotiated with. It can't be ignored. You know, many sicknesses are the top that they will go, that they, if they are left undealt with, they will spread throughout your body and affect other areas. So doctors try and get to the sickness quickly and isolate it and treat it, remove it. And sometimes a body part may need to be removed if it cannot be salvaged from the illness. But maybe they can spare the part. Maybe they can't. If it's not treated, though, it'll spread and affect other parts of the body and it can destroy the whole body and take the life. And I would say to you today that sin is the most contagious, the fastest spreading, hostile, takeover type of disease in all the world. And it cannot be allowed to be paraded around the body. It's got to be dealt with head on and early before it spreads and it gets worse and it begins to take over. You know, Jesus told us how to handle sin corporately. That's, that, that's why in the New Testament that Jesus gives us a way to handle sin corporately. You've got to handle sin individually in your life, but corporately, all these things in the New, Te- in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, they have a, a, there's a corporate nature as the people of God and there's an individual na- nature as a follower yourself if you're a believer. And Jesus told us how to handle sin in the New Testament. Matthew 18, he gives us a whole way to handle when somebody sins against you. In 1 Corinthians 5, he deals with handling sin among, in, in the people of God when they, had, when they had an immoral situation. And somebody's actively coming and participating in, in the assembly and they, they are parading their sin around. What would have happened had Nehemiah ignored Tobiah? If he had been afraid to offend Tobiah or Elisha? See, there's a time and a place for the necessity of confrontation. You know, every local church, including us, we should have a policy for how to deal with unrepentant sin in the body. I mean, the New Testament has one. We should have one that follows the New Testament pattern. And how to remove a member even if necessary. And how to restore a member when necessary. So that, that sounds like hard things to talk about and discuss and figure out. Well, God's already told us how to do it. We just got to say we'll do it. That's part of being a healthy church. Sometimes you have to deal with Tobiah's sin in the lo- a Tobiah type sin in the local church. Rebels against God who set up camp in the church, like almost like a hostile takeover. And we can be like Eliashib, and we can condone and escort, and we can just kind of say, "Here, we'll just put you over here in this quarters, and just let you stay there." Or you can be more like like Nehemiah, who was a lot more like Jesus, and said, "Hey, you got to this. This isn't going to work. This is wrong." See, we must lovingly, as Nehemiah did, be willing to warn people about where sin is taking them and about God's wrath against it. Notice how he kept pointing to that? We must be willing to lovingly tell people hard things. Love does not shrink back from confronting what is evil and harmful. It it just does it in a loving way. I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm not talking about being mean. I'm not talking about rejoicing in something. I'm talking about a broken-hearted people going to broken people and trying to help them. Either we think sin's deadly or we don't. Either we think sin destroys life or we don't. Even we think Jesus died to make His church pure and blameless or we don't. Lovingly 
being willing to confront people in love with grace and with truth for their own good, for God's glory, and for the health of the local body. And as a believer, you must be willing to confront the sin in your own life. In fact, Jesus said, you go looking for specks in other people's eyes, you need to first deal with the big old plank in your eye. And so we've got to be willing to look at ourselves, to wage war in our lives, to do as Jesus said, and be willing to remove an arm if necessary to save our life, to get serious about our sin. Indifference and apathy towards deadly disease in your body would be unthinkable. How much more so should be what is deadly to the soul? Let me read a passage to you from the New Testament, Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, Puritan pastor from years ago, said this. He summed that verse up this way. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You need to regularly expose your heart and life to God's Word so that the Spirit of God can use the Word to expose your sin to you so that you can deal with it. And that's a regular, ongoing thing, being willing to confront the sin in our own life, the Tobias in our own temple, and to deal with them. And this brings us to number four, the most important point of all as we wrap up. All people need Jesus. That's what the whole book of Nehemiah reminds us of. If you just have a big takeaway. The clearest takeaway from Nehemiah 13 and really the book is quite simply we need Jesus. God's people struggled and failed under the Old Covenant. They rededicated themselves to the law, found themselves rebelling time and again. And the Old Testament is simply a story about a people in need of a Savior. Nehemiah's story gets us ready for the coming of Jesus. He reestablishes temple worship under the direction of the law which the people would be a heavy burden on the people they would not be able to bear. In fact, they would come along and they'd make all kinds of other rules to help them keep the rules. And by the time Jesus comes along, it's like a crushing burden on the backs of people. And you've got hypocritical leaders who are saying, hey, if you've got to keep the Sabbath holy, here's 50 things you've got to do to keep the Sabbath holy. That God didn't give them, but they came up with and said it's even more important than what God has said. And it's just like this huge weight on the backs of the people. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And he just blows the whole thing up. He fulfills the law, righteously keeping the law in something we can never do. And then he goes to the cross, bearing our sin, bearing the punishment we deserve for not keeping the law, bearing God's wrath. Three days later, he's risen from the dead. And through faith in him, we get rescued, we get saved from all of our transgressions against God's word and God's law. And His Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and enable us to do what ultimately the law was created to do. It was to love God and love people. And Jesus, is the Holy Spirit, after we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live and reside in us so that we become a people increasingly to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself, which is what the whole law and the prophets hang on. They needed a new heart. We need new hearts. And the gospel makes it possible for us to have new hearts. And Nehemiah and his story point us ahead to the Lord Jesus. Nehemiah was heartbroken over the city of Jerusalem and her need for rebuilt walls. Remember at the beginning he's praying over the brokenness of Jerusalem. Do you remember the scene and Jesus looking out over Jerusalem and he's praying and he's weeping over Jerusalem? He was heartbroken over their need for a Savior. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls to the glory of God. Jesus builds His church to the glory of God. Nehemiah 
was passionate about temple worship and drove out Tobiah from profaning the temple. Jesus was passionate about it as well and drove out the money changers. But Jesus made a way for us no longer to need the temple. He's a better temple who came and died and rose again and makes us into the new temple, the people of God. And Nehemiah confronted sin among God's people so they would walk in a way that pleases God. And Jesus took on our sin, endured God's wrath, and makes it possible for you and I to be forgiven and to walk in victory over sin. See, the key to rebuilding your life, the renewal of your spirit, the revitalization and revival in God's church is not really a strategy, it's a person. And He's Jesus. And if your life is in rubble and disarray this morning, Jesus wants to make you new. If you're living in fear of the enemy this morning, Jesus wants to give you the victory and the courage you need to to live victoriously. And if you're without purpose and hope and direction this morning, Jesus wants to give you a new identity in His family. Jesus rebuilds lives, Jesus rebuilds people, and Jesus rebuilds churches. And more than anything, we must continually look to Jesus, that the Word word points us to Him for our renewal. So today, if you're not a Christian, why has all this got to do with me? Today can be the day of salvation for you. Renewal begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can do that. If you're a Christian today, You need to be reminded, as we all do from time to time, even though we know it, we don't say it to ourselves enough, that we have not arrived. We are a work in progress. We need to continue to press on. It's an uphill walk towards Christ's likeness. But that's not an excuse for us to roll back downhill. It's an incentive for us to press on by the power of the Holy Spirit as we lean into God's work in our life. Are you being led by God's Spirit this morning? Are you dealing with sin in your life? Are you confronting it? Rebuilding is a continual process. And as a church, as we know we're not there yet, let's continually strive to be there. To be Christ-like leaders, devoted to God's will and each other so that we need to be, so that we, and be willing to deal with hard things and to be willing to address hard things and to be willing to lovingly address sin at times and to do the things we need to do to realize that Jesus, this is Jesus' church. And Jesus' church flourishes best when Jesus' church acts as if we're Jesus' church.